we thought we'd take time to answer the question, why? Why are we about the things we're about as a church? Why are we doing the things that we do here on Sunday mornings, Wednesday night, Mondays, Thursdays, you name it? We have discipleship activities happening here all through the week. And I thought that the best way to answer that question was to ask this one. Now, it may not seem connected to you, but stay with me. If I don't tie these threads together at the end, we will refund your money on the way out. (laughs) This is a question that everybody asks at some point in time. I mean, really deep down, and maybe not just for ourselves, but for our children, for our loved ones, is what does it take to go to heaven? Sometimes we say, how am I going to be saved? We put it in a lot of language, but at the end of the day, we want to know how do we have eternal life in heaven? And I thought we could talk about this theologically. We can, you know, dive into a lot of things. I could probably even scrounge up a map that kind of showed you the way, I think. (laughs) But I thought instead, do something a little different. And I thought I would just talk to you and just tell you my story and tell you a part of my testimony, if you will, and kind of how I came to answer this question. And I hope that it resonates with you and you may see yourself in some pieces of this. Uh, You may see yourself in a lot of pieces of this, because I think in some ways it's a pretty common journey. Well, many of you know, if you've uh, heard me teach very much before, I did not grow up going to church. I had great parents who loved us, who sacrificed for us. I knew there was a God, uh, but we didn't go to church. We were kind of religious, but we just didn't attend church. Actually, I think there's a lot of that still going on, you know, in the country. This idea of I'm religious, I believe in God, but I don't go to church. Well, that was us. Now, I had a a really good idea that there was going to be an end of our lives, an afterlife. I really grew up knowing that there was a heaven. But I really had only the vaguest idea of what you might do to actually get there. Now, I was pretty sure that we were all going, my family, we were going to heaven because, you know, as a kid, we're pretty good people, and uh, we believe in God. I believe that Jesus was real because my mom told me Jesus was real. Now, she also told me some things about Santa Claus, and that kind of hurt her credibility on this issue a little bit, but I I, kind of came down on the, okay, I think she's telling me the truth about this Jesus thing. So I believe that Jesus was real, and so consequently, I thought, we're going to go to heaven. Well, as I got a little bit older, got into my late teens, and I started looking into getting a little more serious about life in general and what's the point of life and what do I really believe in. And I began to ask myself essentially this question, what does it really take to go to heaven? And I credit Monday night football with my salvation. Now, follow me on this, okay? Because I didn't know much. The only Bible we had was this mega family Bible that sat on the coffee table that no one ever read, but it it looked really cool, and it was our family Bible, and it was, you know, this big. So I really wasn't that familiar with the Bible, but watching Monday Night Football, there would always be a guy in the end zone holding up a sign, right? John 3.16. Finally clicked to me in late teens, that's a Bible verse. I bet I can figure out how to look this up. And so I did. I thought, this is probably the key. And so here's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world 
but to save the world through him. Now, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Well, that wasn't quite as comforting as I'd been led to believe. This didn't seem like a teddy bear God here. I, I read the condemned part in the unbelief, but I had the clue that I wanted. I understood from this passage, you know what, the key to going to heaven, the key to getting right with God is to believe in Jesus Christ, his son. And so, in a little church, in a little town, in uh, the middle of Kentucky, in my late teens, I walked down an aisle, stood in front of a congregation of 60, 70 people, and said, Jesus is the son of God. They whisked me up there and dunked me right away, <laughs> baptized me right then and there, and told me, you're going to heaven. And I, I thought, I'm going to heaven. I mean, I have done what I was supposed to do. And I remember thinking, you know, this is pretty easy. I mean, it's a little hard to walk down the aisle and, you know, be baptized. I mean, that's, that feels a little odd to us. I thought, but you know, really, this is pretty easy. Little did I know until later, it was easier than I thought. Turns out some of my buddies went to churches where while everybody's eyes were closed, you could sneak your hand up, and that's all you had to do. <laughs> Others just prayed this special prayer with somebody. You didn't have to walk down the aisle, stand in front of the congregation, do that, and be baptized. But whatever, I thought, okay, well, this is even easier than I thought. At that time, uh, the statistics are a little lower now, but at that time, about 90% of Americans believed in God according to polls. And I thought, this is not even going to be a challenge. We're going to mop up that 10% in no time because this is a pretty easy thing to do. But then I hit a hurdle. I started actually reading the Bible. And it kind of threw a monkey wrench into, into my thinking on this a little bit. You know, I thought, hey, maybe I should go see what this Jesus I believe in has to say. Somebody told me the Sermon on the Mount was a great place to start. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So I started Matthew chapter 5, and I'm like, you're absolutely right. I like this Jesus. He's got great things to say. You know, I don't understand exactly everything he's saying. I don't know how serious he is about some of this stuff, but i got to tell you, I like this Jesus. So that was chapter 5. Chapter 6, I'm starting to get a little uneasy about this guy. By the time we get to chapter 7, I'm just positively like, whoa. You guys did not tell me this before I walked down that aisle. I hit chapter 7, thinking, you know, this is pretty easy, and Jesus says this. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. I'm not liking the sound of this. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And I thought, you know, this may not be as easy as I thought. Then I keep reading, and just a few verses later, I run into this, and this just positively terrifies me. Jesus says, you know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Let me fast forward to you a few years later. And reading this, in the original language, there's an interesting little play on the emphasis here. And let me kind of translate this a little differently to give you the sense of the emphasis here. Here's what it's actually saying. He said, many will say to me on that day, in your name, 
didn't we prophesy? In your name, didn't we cast out demons? In your name, we did many mighty works. Jesus responds, never, ever did I know you. The emphasis is really interesting because they're just emphatic to say, this is all about you. I did all of this in your name, Jesus. And he's equally emphatic to say, never once did I know who you were. And I thought, okay, this is a problem. You know, I'm kind of trucking along, believing in Jesus, and I realize maybe there's more to this than I think. Maybe just my belief in Jesus that he's real isn't enough. And I thought, I better read more. So I move on along, and I get to this passage in Mark. Jesus is casting out these demons, evil spirits, and whenever the evil spirits saw him, Mark records, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God, but he gave them strict orders not to tell anybody who he was. I thought, wait a minute. The demons said the same thing I said when I was saved. I thought, you know, if they'll walk down that aisle and let them dunk them, I'm kind of wondering what's going on here. But, you know, I hadn't read the whole Bible at that point, but I knew enough to know that as best I understood it, at the end of the story, it didn't end well for those guys. All right? The demons didn't, this didn't end well for them. And so you can see this kind of playing in my mind, and I'm starting to think to myself, maybe this belief is not all there is to this. Maybe it's just not saying, hey, you're real, and you know you're the Son of God. Even the demons did that. And Jesus himself said, you know what, there, there might be a little more to this. So I began to wrestle with that. I began to wrestle with the idea of, of is, is this belief enough? And I began to look around a little bit, and I began to think about the people's lives that I saw, and my life, and I realized sometimes there was really a lot of change. I, I love those people in that little church. I have nothing negative to say to you about that or that experience, as, as flippant as I'm being about it. Really, very sincere. But I looked around and I realized, if I were honest with myself, I don't know how much has really changed here. I don't know if I were God that, that I could see much difference with me. Then I found a theologian, kind of a hero of mine, who said something that really penetrated my fog and cleared this up for me. This is what he said. <laughs> he said, a difference that makes no difference is no difference. Well, at that time, you know, I'm in college, I'm a math major, and I'm like, Spock, how much more logical can you get, right? And I thought, this makes sense. And that's exactly what I've been experiencing, is if I'm now going to heaven and I wasn't going to heaven before, there's some difference here. But if it doesn't make any difference, then is it really any difference at all? Well, it turns out, Spock happens to be right, but only because he's saying something that the Scripture also says. As I'm moving on through the Bible, I make it to James, and there's this great passage in James chapter 2 that says that faith by itself, my belief, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. He gives these eloquent examples, you know, of just believing without doing you know, as just as the body without the spirit is dead, goes on to say in verse 26, so faith without any works are dead. And so I thought, okay, this 
you're right. There's more to it than that. And now I kind of know what it is. It's not just the belief. There's got to be a difference. There's got to be some action. So at that point, I still haven't made it through the entire Bible, but I decide, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go ahead and skip to the end because I know that at the end there's heaven and there's hell and there's a judgment. And I'm just going to cheat and I'm going to go find out what are going to be the tests on the final exam, right? What is the judgment thing all about? So I go to the end of Revelation, start reading backwards, a practice I do not recommend to you, but in any case, and so it's really good at the end. You know, we got the whole heaven thing going, and we go back, oh, it gets a little worse. We got the hell thing going, we go back a little bit, and we get to judgment. And this is what it says. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades, hell, gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. And it turns out, you know, as I go on, I'll just tell you that that's not the only place in the Bible that talks about that. In fact, Jesus himself talks about that. He talks about coming and judging us all by what we have done. And I thought, okay, I think I've got some clarity. It's not just faith, belief, it's also works, deeds. So what I need is, I need faith and works. In other words, I need to believe in Jesus and I need to start acting better. In other words, I need to, to show some kind of difference and put this into practice in my life. And I don't know if you've ever found yourself there, but you probably find yourself in a place of great tension. This is where I think a lot of Christians live, is this, okay, I know that Ephesians 2.8 says you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. But we also know that faith without works is dead, and we're going to be judged according to what we're done. And it sets up a tension in us. In fact, Dr. Cliff Sanders teaches here, I'll tell you a little more about that later, but talks about this as the dialectic, as the tension that needs to be resolved between grace and effort. If it's God, then why is there anything more than belief? And if it's me, then how am I going to act good enough to do this? So we get into this tension between grace and effort. And I lived there for a number of years. I got introduced to all kinds of interesting concepts as I wrestled with grace and effort. And I became introduced to a concept called trying harder. Anybody else been there? <laughs> it's called, you know what, if you don't feel like you're saved, if you're just not measuring up, try harder. Try harder has a little brother that just follows him everywhere, and his little brother's name is guilt. And so I got introduced to the idea of trying harder to measure up and feeling guilty about it. And I thought, well... I'm not measuring up, but I'm trying harder. I hope I'll get in. I don't know if I'm going to get in. Every time I read the Bible, I feel more convicted about it, and then I don't measure up, which led me to a really interesting concept. I don't know if you guys have heard about this. I don't know if every denomination has this concept. The one that I was in really has this concept. It's called backsliding. And I got introduced to that in a big way because after running on that little wheel of try harder, all right, believe in Jesus, got to make sure it shows, got to make sure we measure up. I'm going to try harder, and I feel guilty because I, 
I'm not measuring up. I kind of got introduced to the idea of, oh, what's the point, right? And so went off. In fact, there were years there where if there were a Guinness Book of World Records for backsliding, I think I'd be there. I set new heights in the idea of backsliding and coming back and was introduced to the idea of repentance, which is a really good idea, and felt like, and I know a lot of people live in this way, we're trying to answer this question, what do I need to do to be right with God? And I realize I need to believe in Jesus, but I also know that it's got to make a difference. You you look in the Bible and you see Acts 2 and you see Acts 4 and you see those early believers, and they weren't perfect by any means. But I thought, that doesn't look like my life. It doesn't look radical. You see transformation happening in people's lives. And I realized I wasn't really getting there that way. And so this tension was really a problem. But as I dive into the Word, you know, I come back to the Word of God, I go back to the Bible, I realize something. I realize that in the Bible, there's not really any tension around this issue. I mean, that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I don't know if you're in your study, if you've realized that. If you're caught in this cycle, you know, this trying to measure up, trying to do good enough, and either dropping off into universalism as, ah, we'll probably all go to heaven anyway, or dropping off into guilt, which is, I don't know if I can measure up or not. As I read the scriptures, I realized the scriptures talk about this without any tension whatsoever. In fact, the scriptures talk about faith in a way that's very different. Look at this. I was reading in Galatians, and I come across this. And I think of faith as something that I have. It's an opinion that I hold. And I think of works as something that I do. And I'm trying to wrestle with the idea of I've got to think and believe the right things, and I've got to act the right way. And I hit this, and it says, Now, by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. All of a sudden, this is talking about faith like it's not some static thing. It's some real active thing. It's pointed towards a hope. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. And this is the idea of your acts earning your way to God. And I thought, boy, that's me. I'm counting on some kind of deeds here. He says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's an interesting word that's translated expressing itself. It's where we get our word literally, energize. And so what it's saying is faith is energized in our life and the mechanism is love. Faith being energized through love. And that hit me as a kind of a novel idea. It's something I really had not thought about. And that is that maybe this isn't a simple dualism that cannot be resolved. Believe hard enough or do good enough. That maybe this faith, this belief, is something that's dynamic. Maybe it's something in and of itself that manifests itself in some way. And for a little bit, that satisfied me. And I thought, okay, I just need to kind of get in touch, you know, with my inner faith and let it, you know, come out and exercise it. And I don't know about you, but I just found that having a hard time to overcome. I felt like Paul in Romans 7 when he says, you know, I know the right thing to do, and I just can't seem to do it because the sin that's inside me keeps warring against me. And so I felt torn, and I still felt that tension. And so here I was caught on the idea, I desperately want to go to heaven, and as I read the scriptures, it's just not making it easy for me. It tells me that my faith has to be transformative, and yet, here I am stuck inside this tension. 
So I was reading a verse, though, and this is the point that I want to get to a little bit later in my life, and this is after going and coming and wrestling and so forth, and, and I hope you've seen a little piece of maybe your journey in this because I want to bring some clarity to this because it really got brought home to me in a big way. There's a verse in Romans. It's not the only verse that says this, but this is the one that hit me like a ton of bricks. You're going to know this verse, and you're going to love this verse, but you're going to love it for the wrong reasons. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. That's not me. Though for a good one, man, someone might possibly dare to die. Still not me. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You know, I put this down when I read this, and I thought, you know what? This doesn't sound anything like my Christian walk. This is talking about rejoicing, joy, and peace. It had been a while since I'd had any joy and peace because I was trying too hard to measure up and going through the guilt cycle and the backslide cycle and the comeback cycle, and, and it was just turmoil. It was always trying to measure up, always trying to find some reassurance, you know, that I was okay or I wasn't okay, and there was no joy or peace in that, and a lot of Christians live there. You know, we'll read about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc., and we realize... What am I doing wrong? Why am I not experiencing that? Well, chances are we're wrestling with that tension, aren't we? I believe in Jesus, but it hasn't transformed me. And so I need to try harder to be transformed. I need to try harder to measure up. When I read this, I read it through the lens that I was originally told. And this is true, but it's backwards. I was told that Jesus loves you. He died on a cross for you, and so you should give your life to him. Well, that made me feel warm. It was good to know, and it's true, that we are loved in that way. And so that was the motive for saying, okay, well, then I'm going to believe in you, Jesus, or that's the motive for I'm going to clean my life up, Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've prayed so many times that, God, if you'll only do this, I'll clean my life up. I don't even think he believes me anymore, right? I read it in a very self-centric way, like, look what he did for you, now here's what you need to do for him. And that's a really quick path into that tension, into that dead end of belief, works, grace, effort. How do I resolve this tension? Instead, it hit me that, you know what, I think he's saying just the opposite. I don't think he wants anything from me here. In fact, when I read this, it sounds like he's already done everything. Everything is done. His love was unilateral toward me. His death is unilateral. His reconciliation is one-sided toward me. He asked me for a response, and it turns out he's asking me for way more than I thought. He's trying to show me something in this passage, and I thought when I read this, here's what I said to myself. I said, you know what? I can trust that guy. 
as much as my parents love me, and as wonderful, as much as my brothers and sisters and, and wife, and, and, and as much love as I felt for anyone else, I'd lived enough life to know that everyone will disappoint us. And you know why? Because I disappointed a lot of people too. And I lived it on that side and I realized, you know what, we're just not capable of that kind of love. And then I realized, but he is. He didn't do that to get me to do something. He did that to show me that he is completely trustworthy. And I thought to myself, you know what, if I'm going to follow somebody, I'll follow that guy anywhere. He loves me so much, he did that when I was still a sinner. When I hated him, he died for me. That's not there to make me feel all sentimental. He doesn't care if that makes me tear up a little bit and go, oh, Jesus, you're so nice. I'm going to walk an aisle and get dunked in a tank for you. That's not the point. He just said, before you ever even asked, I want to show you I am ultimately trustworthy. I love you more than anyone can love you. I'll do something for you that no one else could do for you. And I want you to take a deep breath and relax. Wow. I thought, you know what? That whole wrestling with believing in Jesus and things, that's just totally missing the point. I thought, here's the point. I'll follow that guy anywhere. Then I start reading the scriptures, and I start realizing this starts to make sense. I read in Matthew when he says to his disciples, his followers, his students, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And I thought, that's what he wants. He did that to show me that I could trust him. He took care of everything that needed to be taken care of and said, how do you want to respond to that? Because I've taken care of everything. I have shown you without a doubt that I am completely trustworthy. Will you follow me? Think about how many times in the, in the New Testament Jesus says that to people. What do you want me to do, Jesus? Sell everything you have and follow me. Here's some fishermen, Jesus. Why don't you guys drop your nets and come follow me? What do you want from me, Jesus? I want you to get off your path. I want you to deny yourself. And I want you instead to follow me and go where I'm going to go. Why should I do that? Because I've already shown you, Jesus says, that I am completely trustworthy. No one loves you more than I love you. You can't do anything that's going to change the fact that I love you this much. Now, will you follow me? Totally different ballgame. It's not now about, do I give some assent to Jesus? Now I understand the demons. I understand why. They and I can say the same thing, but we don't have anywhere near the same experience of this. I kept reading on, come to this. Luke 6.39, this is very interesting. He says, not only do I want you to follow me, I'm going somewhere and I have plans for you. He says this parable. He said, can a blind man lead a blind man? And you know, that's really, whatever you're following right now, you're following a blind man. Because I've run into a lot of walls in my life and it's because ultimately I'm following a blind man. Unfortunately, it was usually me. He says, a student is not above his teacher and everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. There's another interesting word. That word that's translated fully trained or perfected is also used in Matthew 4 about fishermen mending their nets. It's, it's virtually this. It says, and everyone who's repaired, everyone who's mended will be like his teacher. And I realized he has a plan for me, and it's more audacious and more ambitious than I ever realized. And you see it bluntly in Romans 8.29. 8.28 says, In all things God works for the good of those who loved him, or called according to his purpose. Those God foreknew, he also predestined. Ooh, 
I have a destiny. He has something in mind for you. What is my destiny? To be conformed to the likeness of his son. This is more bold than I ever thought. He did something incredibly radical just to show me how trustworthy he is. And he says, do you want to follow me? Because I'm going to make you look just like me. In ancient times, disciples, when they'd follow their rabbi, they literally wanted to be like their rabbi. Conjure up in your mind the picture of Orthodox Jews today. It's a great example. And you'll see some of them wearing furry hats and all their disciples behind them, furry hats, long coats. Another one, here's a rabbi. He's wearing a fedora. He's wearing a short jacket. What do his disciples look like? Exactly like him. They don't want to just know what the rabbi knows. They don't want to just act like the rabbi acts. They want to be him. That's what Jesus is saying. He said, I'm going to make you into who I am. And I realized, as I started down that line of thinking and that way of looking at my life, I I stopped thinking about heaven. I stopped thinking about, just kind of naturally, what am I going to get? Okay, Jesus, you love me, you died on a cross, you made it possible for me to go to heaven. What do you want from me? You want belief? You want actions? I'm wrestling with this, but I'll try my best. I'll try as hard as I can to live up to it. And then in the end, you give me heaven, right? He says, nah, you're completely missing this point. And sure enough, I realized I don't actually care about heaven. Heaven is not the issue anymore. The issue is I'm going to go where he's going, wherever that is. If it's through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm going with him. If it's to still waters, green pastures, I'm going with him. And all of a sudden, the scriptures start to make sense. It's all about this response of trust. Is the fundamental question is this, is Jesus trustworthy? Are we willing to follow him wherever he goes? When I hit that point in my life, I start, and do not misunderstand me, I am not telling you that I have arrived and that I'm looking from this great vantage point. I'm just telling you that here's one guy who's made about every mistake that you can make. I bet I've made every mistake you've made and one better. And been off this path a long time and really wrestled with this. And every time God draws me back to this scripture and he begins to teach me and he finally got through and he said, you don't understand. I did all of that just to see, will you trust me enough to follow me wherever I go? And when you say yes to that, heaven doesn't matter. It's just no longer about that. Well, will I be prosperous? It doesn't matter. Well, will everything turn out the way I want? It doesn't matter. I'm going where he goes, I'm going to do what he says, and ultimately he is going to turn me into the image of Jesus Christ. And I will be unbelievably peaceful, and you begin to experience this idea of joy and peace. That's the path, and we call it discipleship. And this comes all the way full circle to the idea of why do we do what we do? This is how we understand the scripture telling us about discipleship. Let me put it in some human words for you. Uh, This is not inspired. Uh, This is inspired by about seven or eight uh, pastors on our staff, so take that for what it's worth. But here's what we understand this. A disciple, a follower, a learner, literally what it means, is one who is being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ by the word of God. Where did did all anything I know about Jesus come from? What has ever corrected every, every errant thought that I've had is the truth of the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what lets us breathe out. 
and go, I don't have to try harder. This is where God's spirit wants to take me. You know what I have to do? I have to surrender. Deny myself and say, I'll follow you. I wanted to go there, and I'm tired of beating my head against that wall. I'm going to go there. I'm going to follow you. That's what a disciple is, and that's what we want to do. That's what we're here to help each other become. We are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ by the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. We think that the best way we can help each other do that is we want to grow in the knowledge of God's word. I'll tell you what, it made a difference to me by the time I reached the end of the New Testament. I can't believe it took me that many years to do. It's not exactly, you know, a huge novel here. But the point is, when I did that, I thought, I understand this story. I understand who you are, and I get it. I get what this idea of this radical love is all about, and I get what you are asking from me. We align our values with God's values. Nobody goes to heaven just because they know the right things. We want to be like Jesus Christ. We want to have the opinions that Jesus Christ has. I want to see the world the way he has. I desperately want to see people the way he sees people. Unfortunately, Terry sees a lot of good people, bad people. Jesus sees lost people, found people. I want to see things the way he sees it. And then finally, actions that reflect God's purpose in the world. You know, back when I was in the do better phase, you know, I'm going to pile up some deeds here because I'm going to be judged by these deeds. I did a lot of good deeds, and I did a lot of good deeds that I thought were good deeds. And it turns out, the more I understand this, I realize, you know, that was self-serving. I helped poor people so I would feel better. Oh, I didn't tell myself that at the time, but as I looked through that lens, I realized I did a lot of things to make me feel better. Again, it's all about me. Now I realize I want to think about things the way you do, and I want to be about your business in this world. Now that's going to be inconvenient for me, but that's okay. I'll follow you wherever you go, and I'll do whatever you want. Knowledge, values, and actions. That's what we're trying to do. And that's why we wanted to gather together is for worship. I wanted to tell you that story, and again, I don't know if you made as many missteps as I did, but I'd like you to think about the scriptures in that way. I don't want you to be stuck on saying, I believe in Jesus, and that's going to have to be good enough. Or be stuck with the, I've got to try harder to measure up. really want you to fall in love with the Son of God who so loved you and me that before we ever had any thought whatsoever of doing any good deed, he said, I'll die on a cross for you. Now, do you think I'm trustworthy? Are you willing to follow me? And it's not a trade. It's a if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to give up everything because I'm not going where you're going, and I'm not about what you're about, and I'm not even as concerned as you are about the things you're concerned. You trust me. I'll work all things together, and we'll end where we need to end. That's why we do what we do. For example, next week, some of you are going to start Centered. It's a 10-week series where you get in a small group, you go through some of the basics of the Christian faith, going to do some prayer time together, some sharing together, if you haven't signed up for that and you want to, they'll be right outside at the next step table and start a, a group next week, put you with a group of people, and, and off we go. It's a great program to get us started on this path of understanding who God is. You might say to yourself, I've read the Bible, and I'd like to know, how do I understand this? How do I see the clarity of what God's saying? Cliff Sanders, Chris Helterbrand, we're going to teach this at least twice a year. We want you to be able to read this and give you some simple tools that say, this is how you just simply understand what God is saying, and it's just going to unlock 
riches. I'd highly recommend it to you. Also have a study for women. Sometimes we like to do men's groups. We have them all through the week. And women's groups, sometimes we like to do them on Wednesday night because we know that some women can't come on Monday mornings when we also do women's programming. So there's this great study on the armor of God for women talking to other women about their walk in Christ. Wednesdays we use sometimes for equipping. We want to talk about, well, how then do we act well? Here's a great way. Let's train our kids early on to steward the things God has given us. You know the best defense against greed? Giving. We don't tithe because God needs our money. We tithe because we need the defense against greed. Great class, great uh, material. Chosen. There are a group of people here that are passionate about helping each other and helping others who want to get involved in the foster care, want to help solve, help go be about God's business with foster children. It's a crisis. We have other small groups. Some of you are in small groups, and you're in here tonight together, but normally you're off studying the Bible together, talking about growing in the knowledge of the Lord, letting that transform us. Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind and getting our values aligned with God, and you do that in groups. And then we begin to act. We begin to live it out during the week. Some of you are going to be doing that as well. And then finally in here, we're going to start a series on Jesus, the stories that he told, the parables. As you can tell, it was transformative to me to really get to know this Jesus. The Jesus I thought I knew was saying something a little different to me. And I like to go back and say, what does this Jesus that I believe in have to say to me? And that's what we're going to do in here. But whatever you do, this is, this is our walk. This is discipleship. We do this to encourage each other, to energize our faith, and to equip each other together as we follow Jesus Christ. That's why we do what we do. Well, all the way back then to the question, what does it take to get into heaven? I told you that at some point, that actually ceased to be an interesting question. But here's the answer. I'm going to tell you the answer in a story. This is a story uh, not from the Bible, but it's one that I really, really like. It comes from the Jewish wisdom literature. Jews have about 3,500 years of stories of them trying to follow God. And they record them in the book called the Talmud. It's kind of the recorded history of Jewish wisdom. And there was a rabbi, one of the most famous teachers in ancient times, and he was known for being one of the smartest guys in history. In fact, he was not only smart, he was quick. He had the right answer, and nobody ever got the better of him. I don't know about you, I'm just going to tell you, I feel like I have the right answer in every circumstance about two days later. Does that happen to you? You give me two days, I think I've got just the right response. Well, this guy had the right answer right then and there. It's said that no one ever outsmarted this guy. His name was Joshua, the son of Hananiah. But he said one time, and he told this story, he said, one time I was outsmarted by a little boy. And his disciples said, Master, how can that be? He said, one time I was on my way to a city, and I'd never been to that city, but I knew the road, and so I took the road, and as I got closer to that city... I came to a crossroads, and there was a little boy sitting there. And I said to the little boy, son, tell me, how do people go to the city? And the little boy answered, and he said, sir, that is the short and long way. 
And that is the long and short way. He said, well, so I took the short way, of course, and I went on down the road, and it's going quite well, and I can actually see the city in the distance, but then I come to the edge of this cliff, and I realize there's a cliff, there's a ravine, there's a forest, that there it is right there, but I can't get to the city that way. And so he turns around, he goes back, he comes back to the crossroads, and there's the little boy, and he said, son, you told me that was the short way. And he said, I also told you it was the long way. He said, so I took the other path, and in time, I came to the city without any obstacles whatsoever. And thus, I was outsmarted by a little boy. Well, that story is stuck with me in this sense. We're all looking for shortcuts. Sometimes that shortcut is, how can I have Jesus and my security? How can I have Jesus and my money? How can I have Jesus and this or and that? I want some kind of shortcut. I want to go to heaven but I don't actually want to die. I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to give this up. And that story is always a good reminder to me of this. There are no shortcuts to heaven. The only way to get to heaven is to follow Jesus through the gate. You have to follow Jesus through the gate. We have to be so close to Jesus, follow him so closely that there's no room for anything to get between us. In Jesus' time, Disciples would walk, and and Jesus' disciples did this too, as he would walk from town to town, they would walk behind him. And there was a saying, is that may you follow your rabbi so closely that you are covered in his dust. Well, you can see the meaning of that. What they meant was, may you be so close in following him and becoming like him that literally the dust from his feet covers your legs. And I think about that image when I think about Jesus. What's the way to heaven? Follow Jesus so closely that nothing gets in between us. Not our temptations, not our sin, nothing can get between us because we follow him that closely. That's what we're here to do. That's how we get into heaven, is we follow Jesus there. Sometimes you wonder, is that possible? Can I do it? I'm imperfect. I step away. I backslide, I fall off the path, I don't do what I know that I ought to do. Well, here's some really encouraging words that Paul writes to us at the end of that chapter 8, where he says, God is going to turn you into an image of Jesus Christ. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can separate us from our rabbi? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, intimidation? No. He says, in all of these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you hear that again? Who him who loved us, who has already conquered. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present or anxiety about the future, nor any powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we come full circle. It's all about what he is able to do and what he has already done. Your and my job is to follow. And that's what we're doing here, is we're simply walking that road. We're going to walk it on Sundays, on Wednesday nights, on Mondays, Thursdays, whatever we do. Just like the Jews of old when they said, you should talk about God when you get up and when you go to bed, when you go to work, when you're on your way. Tell your children 
Bind it to your forehead. Put it on your wrists. In other words, follow Jesus wherever he goes. That's what we're about. That's what discipleship is. That's why we do what we do. I would really urge you to think about that. If you're trapped in the idea of the tension, the dialectic between, is it God's grace, is it my effort? How good do I have to act? I'm trying harder. I can't find peace. I can't find joy. Is rest in the knowledge that Jesus Christ loved you enough to prove he is completely trustworthy. Now, will we take up that cross and say, I'm going where you're going, and I'm doing what you're doing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come together, and I thank you for all of these people here. We have a heart to follow you, but we confess we don't always do it well. Also, Lord, I know that there are people in our midst, and I count myself among them, who slip into this idea that I don't measure up. Slip into the idea that I'll be about my business and you'll still somehow take me to heaven, even if I don't follow you. Lord, I pray that you would just pull us, draw us back to you with your love. You are completely trustworthy, and I pray that we would simply say, Lord, we will follow you wherever you go. Show us how to do that on Monday, on Friday. Show us how to do that in our families. Show us how to do that in our work. Help us learn from each other in our relationship. Help us to encourage each other, to equip each other, to energize each other. And Father, give us the certain and sure knowledge that there is nothing that can separate us from you. There is no power in this world that can tear us away from you. Father, may we always keep you in our sights, the author and the perfecter of our faith. I pray your blessing on everyone here, and I pray, Lord, that as we begin this new season of, of learning and thinking and knowing you more closely, you would bless us with incredible growth. In the name of Jesus Christ, who loved us. In the name of Jesus Christ, who leads us. Amen. God bless you as you go. Bring your friends next week. Thank you. If you fill up the rooms where we have things, we'll find bigger rooms. If you fill those up, Marty will build new ones. <laughs> I, I may have gone too far there. See you next week.